So I, I feel those stories in the Torah spoke for themselves. Uh, it was, uh, that was a fiasco, uh, really. I mean, the, the outcome of it, the people of Israel felt for the next 38 years, um, absolute disaster. It wasn't an event that simply happened in the course of a day. It was an event that there were, there were, there were situations that led up to it. And what I hear, I think, is the, uh, the, the, the kicker, like the, the, the crux of this whole event uh, in terms of analyzing why the people of Israel responded the way they did, why they were exiled to die in the desert, is in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, where uh, we get to listen in on a little one-on-one conversation between the Holy One and Moses, where he says, um, Moses, how long will these people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? How long will they not believe me? I think, I think that was, that's the crux right there. The people of Israel had a faith crisis. Um, when, when it came to either believing and acting on what was communicated to them from Yahweh, there was a failure. And uh, the result was disaster. Um, that very, applies very much to us. Um, we, we have the choice every day to build our faith. There are certain activities that we can engage in that will build our faith so that when the crisis hits or when we receive clear directors, directives from the Master in terms of our mission, we will, we will uh, we'll, we'll make it through the crisis, we'll hold together, we'll uh, respond obediently and with a good attitude. Or, when that crisis or that directive comes from Him, we'll discover that maybe we hadn't invested in our spiritual lives and we hadn't been intentionally building our faith And uh, the outcome, of course, is disaster, not only often for ourselves, but for our families and our communities. So, on a very practical level, what did Paul say in Romans? How does faith come? (coughs) Faith comes by hearing the Word. That's correct. So, you know, as each one of us in our discipleship to Yeshua, and as we as a community continue to press in in His Word, studying it intensively, applying it to our lives, and, and most of all, focusing on who it is who gave the word, developing that trust-based relationship, when, when, those, when the crunch comes, you're going to make it through. One other thing we could infer from that is, um, Paul also write, wrote that we have a spirit of faith. He actually said faith is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Just like healing or tongues are gifts of the Holy Spirit, faith is a gift. So faith isn't something you work up on your own. Faith is something that He gives you. Faith is something that happens when His Spirit is flowing through you. So as we cultivate a relationship with the Holy Spirit, as we ask the Father regularly to be filling us with His Spirit, we're going to discover that faith that, that makes it through when, uh, for the people of Israel, there was total failure. Um, two other practical things I'll point out from the parasha, and then we'll look at Timothy. Uh, Shabbat. You know, uh, the creator of the universe said over and over to Israel, do Shabbat. Don't do certain things on Shabbat. He, he was there visibly in their midst. He performed awe-inspiring, supernatural, paranormal feats in Egypt. And there's this one dude in Israel who obviously hated, hated God's guts. He, just, he, had, he had a total disrespect for the creator's authority. And, uh, you know, there were six days when he could have gotten his firewood, could have gotten his kindling for uh, cooking or whatever, and he just decided to do it on Saturday, even though he knew very well what the Creator had said. And, and, and um, the response was, that is actually an act that deserves capital punishment. That is treason of the highest order against His Majesty's governance over the nation. Uh, sometimes today, maybe people would look at that and say, well, that's a little extreme, isn't it? But I think that's a very clear picture of how the Creator views our human rebellion towards Him, our insubordination towards Him, when He reveals Himself to us, when we know full well who He is and what His will is. And, and, and for me personally, that strikes a certain degree of terror in my heart about playing fast and loose with the Holy One. Um, so, you know, how does that apply to us today? How it applies is simply when you've studied His Word, when you read the Torah, when you see a commandment where God says, do this or don't do that, and we just play fast and loose with that, it's a very dangerous place to be. Um, that, that could qualify as insubordination. That could qualify as treason against uh, the theocracy of God. So, let's do the Bible. Let's read the Bible. Let's apply it. And... Uh, Let's, let's have a certain aspect, not only of doing His Word out of love, but also doing His Word 
out of a healthy respect and even a fear of him. Um, also, this parsha ends with talking about something that in Hebrew is called tzitzit. Everybody say tzitzit. tzitzit. It, th- th- that sound is the same as you have the sound in pizza or in a tsunami. It's that T-S or T-Z sound, right? And it's twice over. So everyone say tzitzit. tzitzit. Right on. And um, I've got some of these things on right now, actually. They're translated as fringes, tassels, etc. I'll point out a couple things about these things for us on a practical level. Firstly, God says this is for Israel. So if we identify with Israel, then that means this is for us. Um, God also says in Numbers chapter 15, at the end of the chapter, that this is, quote, throughout your generations. In other words, as long as the people of Israel are around this is for you. That also means that this is a generational thing. So if you want to see the covenant blessings come upon your generations, then do this stuff. It's, it's something, for instance, that when a father wears tzitzit on his garments, it communicates something powerful to his children and to his grandchildren and to his great-grandchildren. Because, you know, from a very early age, when, um, for instance, when my daughter sees these, it already tells her something. Uh, I, I'll give you, I'll give you a, an example from my brother Colin's life. Um, my brother Colin wears tzitzit just on a regular basis. He wears them to work. He was working in a, uh, in a boy's home, and uh, he wore them. And, you know, of course, the boys would say, what are those? And it gave him some great opportunities to, to share his faith and to talk about our Creator. And uh, one day, for whatever reason, he didn't wear his tzitzit. Maybe he forgot, or maybe he was... I don't know, whatever the case may be, but he walked into the boy's home and one of the boys looked at him with this horrified look and he said, you don't believe in God anymore? <laughs> because, because to him, you know, this was a visible sign of his faith in God. And I just think, wow, that, see, so that was communicating something powerful. Um, I, I have a cousin, I love her, her name is Cam, and uh, she was asking me about why I wear fringes. And I said, well, basically because God said to in the Bible and because Jesus did. And she said, you know, I really like that. I really, I believe in being radical, radical for God. And you're really being radical for God. So, um, for, you know, there's that, there's that level of it too. Um, as a man, I have to admit, sometimes it's a little uncomfortable wearing the strings. It looks like my underwear started to unravel and I can't, like some kind of crazy thing, you know? Really, I, people, people, I know people like have questions. I used to work at a tire and mechanical shop in Blaine Lake and I remember walking in there once and my, my ex-employer, he's a, tough, he's a trucker, he's a tough guy, he didn't look at my face. He stared at my midsection for a while. I was like, hey Wade, how's it going? It's like, I'm up here, you know? So I mean, as a man, I know that sometimes it's like, people wonder what that is. Is it some kind of clothing style or whatever? But uh, you know what? It is a very masculine thing to believe the Torah and apply it to one's life. And you know what? Maybe we're redefining that masculinity in some ways as we do that. I feel like I'm doing that sometimes. You know what? Sometimes in the morning, I'm like, oh man, I don't want to put these things on. People are going to look at me funny and they're going to wonder what kind of a religious freak I am or whatever, you know? I mean, seriously. I have to, I, I, th- just this, this commandment alone has really, it's really brought up some motives in my heart. Areas where I, th- I care more about what people think about me than what my father thinks of me. And I've had to, I've had to deal with that, you know? So, um, uh, Men, men especially, um, if you identify with Israel, if you believe that the Torah is for you, then I encourage you, don't just say it with your mouth. Put some actions behind that. Or you may have some inconsistency in your life. That may even qualify as hypocrisy. Um, our Savior wore tzitzit. The Greek word in the Septuagint for, the, for tzitzit is, is kraspidon. Everybody say kraspidon. So it's a pretty cool Greek word. And uh, when it says in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark that the woman took hold of the hem of the master's garment, that word is kraspidon. So that wasn't just the edge of his jacket. She took hold of the tzitzit on the corner of his garment. And there was there, th- that act of faith, there was an effective flow of power that went into her, and she was healed 
I wonder if that doesn't apply to us also. As we take hold of Yeshua, as we take hold of His Torah, as we take hold of what the tzitzit represent, namely applying God's commandments to our lives, could it be that His healing power will flow through us, to our families, uh, to our faith communities, to uh, the world around us? I I believe so. Um, So, uh, guys, I would would challenge you with that. Ladies, um, maybe some of you are asking, well, traditionally in Judaism, do women wear tzitzit, or what does that look like? Um, generally in Judaism, ladies wear, if they wear tzitzit, it'll be in a more like a feminine way if it's public. Um, even that is a little, a little almost radical, but there is that, that case sometimes. Um, a, a lot of women will have a tallit, like a prayer shawl, and they'll use that in their private prayer times also, and I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing. So, um, off, you know, if a, a wife will often use her husband's tallit, you know, if maybe she wants to just really get into a prayer prayer session or whatever, she'll go in and get her husband's tallit. That sometimes happens in the in the uh, Jewish world also. No, I agree. Tzitzit are they definitely symbolize holiness. I mean, holiness, the root concept there is separation to Him. Uh, it also implies separation from the world. So, doing stuff like this makes you different. It's a fact of life. That's very true. Absolutely. Um, he actually says, why do we wear tzitzit here? Uh, this is very relevant to all of us also in terms of the principle of it. He says, wear them so that you'll see it. And actually the Hebrew there says, see him. So there's something about these that represent seeing him, having him in our vision, um, so that you'll see it and remember all of his commandments to do them. So the whole point of tzitzit is, will you obey God? This is like the litmus test, right? Will you obey God? And then he goes on to say, so as not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot. So it's like he gives us these two choices. Um, tzitzit represent obeying God and going with his perspective. Not wearing tzitzit, according to the Bible, represents going after your own perspective and how you feel about things when your perspective and how you feel about things is different than him. And actually God labels that whoring. He says, that's playing the harlot. So that's, those are very strong words. So I encourage you to take the litmus test. Now on a practical level, there are different ways to apply this commandment. Um, you know, um, some Jewish males will get out their tallit in the morning in their times of prayer. And that's when they'll get their tzitzit on. Um, some Jewish males will wear it on a tallit katan, a little tallit, as an undergarment and have them tucked in, especially in, uh, let's say, European countries where there's a high level of anti-Semitism. Um, some, guys, um, some guys will wear it on their belt. I wear it on my belt because I really don't enjoy wearing um, certain kinds of undershirts in the summertime, for instance, and I like having a functional version of the Torah. So, you know, some guys will wear them just... Uh, during time of prayer, some guys will wear them all the time. Uh, one good question to ask on a practical level is, what did Yeshua do? Because he's, he's a great example, isn't he? He is the master. We're the disciples. Imitation of him is what discipleship is all about. Yeshua, it's notable, wore his tzitzit publicly because the woman was able to grab hold of the thing. That would have been a little uncomfortable if he had them tucked in. And secondly, he wore them all the time. So he didn't just wear them to a Shabbat service. He wore them publicly, and he wore them on a daily basis. So that's the example of our master. Uh, you know. Now, I know there are, there are all kinds of exceptions. For instance, if you're in the construction world, and you're working with, like, you know, I have a background in timber framing, you can't wear big, long strings on your pants when you're working with power, power tools. You know, when you're working with 220-volt, like, 14-inch saws, you do not want those getting, getting caught in the saw, or you are going to be a mangled mess, eh? So, I mean, there's safety concerns. Um, like we had mentioned, you know, there are anti-Semitic areas where you just can't display publicly that you're a Jew. You know, there, there are different situational things there. I think the main question is, though, are we going to believe him, and are we going to act on that belief? Are we going to respond with love to him and apply the Bible to our lives? And he'll show us the details. Yeshua is our Torah teacher, his spirit. His spirit is guiding us into all the truth. Um, So that's just a brief overview of the Torah and some practical applications. Uh, Let's have a look at uh, this passage from Timothy. I love this letter because it's like one-on-one mentoring between Shaul, who is one of the sages of our movement, one of the sages of the early Yeshua movement, and, and Timothy, his protege. So in, in many regards, I think each of us could read this letter on a very personal level, as, uh, as Paul also uh, speaking these things, these things to us. And we'll just, uh, we'll just go through some of these things and break some of it down. I, I, I should mention, um, 
I think we're going to have to keep comments today for, uh, for after the service for Oneg and things just because of our time frame. And also I've been receiving a lot of comments lately from our live streaming friends saying, you know, I can't hear the comments. So there's this kind of blank space and then I, I don't know what's going on. So just, just for this Shabbat anyway, we're just going to, if you have comments or questions, if you want to write those down, that'll be great. And uh, I know often we don't get around to them at Oneg, but you know, if we really care about something we have to say, then let's bring it up in Oneg and just continue, continue the discussion. Uh, first thing Paul says is in the end of days there's going to be a falling away, an apostasy from the faith. They're actually spirits that are deceptive spirits. So just because it's spiritual, we can infer from that doesn't mean it's good. Just because someone is operating in an anointing doesn't mean it's a true anointing. You can be anointed with a deceptive spirit. They're actually demons whose job is to push false teachings incorrect doctrines on people in the body of Messiah. Paul said this was going to be a hallmark of the end of days. It was going to be characterized by a falling away from the original faith. So as we, as we focus on Yeshua and the example that he set, as we focus on the writings of his apostles and the doctrines that they gave to the early Messianic community, we are going to be doing well is we cultivate a passion to be like the early church, to express our faith in the parameters of the early church, we're going to be doing well. Uh, One particular thing he pointed out is one of the hallmarks of this falling away, of this deception, will be forbidding from marriage. Now, sadly enough, this was something that was rampant in the early church beginning in the 100s. Uh, There were whole monastic communities that were set up where marriage was forbidden. Um, I don't know how that could happen in view of this passage. Uh, There's a sizable religious organization today that forbids its ministers from marriage. I have serious concerns with that, to be honest. When Paul says blatantly that forbidding from marriage is a hallmark of demonic doctrine. So that's something to take note of on a theological level. Um, Alarms should be going off when marriage is forbidden. It means we're going in the wrong direction with this. Um, A couple of verses later, he talks about um, abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And then he goes on to say, everything but created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now Simon Peter, at the end of his second epistle, said, Paul is a hard guy to understand sometimes. And even when he was alive, people were already twisting some of his words around. Uh, This could probably be an example. Was Paul here advocating that we take our theological scissors and cut out parts of the Torah? Was he, was he suggesting that we just discard the food laws? Never mind that Yeshua practiced them. Never mind that the apostles did, etc. Um, I suggest to you that wasn't what he was getting at, and I will explain to you why. Um, if that was the case, that Paul was just saying everything created by good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, so you know we could read that and say, well, well basically, I can eat anything I want to as long as I thank God for it. You know, if I'm really thankful for it, um, man, you know, that would be a, probably the flagship verse of the cannabis movement in Canada to, uh, you know, the move to legalize um, marijuana. Everything created by God is good. So if I thank God as I smoke this joint, this is a righteous deed, dude. Now, you know, if, if you were to apply, okay, if you were to apply the, that hermeneutic um, that would discard the food laws, then you'd also have to say, well, cannabis is, is legal also. Um, however, there are verses that state that I would suggest very clearly that it isn't. Uh, God said to respect our government and to obey them. Um, he said your body is a temple, take care of it. Um, cannabis will eventually trash your brain. Uh, so anyway, we're not going to get into too much detail because I don't think that's a major issue in our congregation. But I'm just using that as an example. Uh, turpentine. Well, God said, you know, Paul said I can, I can basically slosh anything. So, you know, I like to have a good chug of turpentine in the morning and I'm really thankful for it. Never mind that it's eating my body out and destroying me. Do you, do you get the idea? I mean, this can't just be an across-the-board statement. It ha- we have to understand it in context. We need, to, we need to see how this is couched. He goes on to say in verse 5, and this is, this is where the context is, it is sanctified by means of two things. What? One, the Word of God. Two, prayer. What was the Bible that Paul read? It was the Old Testament. 
The Word of God to Paul was the Old Testament. Now, they were in the process of writing the New Testament, which was also definitely the Word of God. But contextually, Paul was talking about the Old Testament. So what he was saying is, the food that we eat is, is, is sanctioned for us. It is sanctified for us by the Word of God. In other words, if it gets the thumbs up from the Torah, then it's sanctified. If it gets the thumbs down in the Torah, which is the Bible that Paul read and, and practiced, then that doesn't qualify and he goes on to say, by prayer. So it's a good thing to pray before we eat. And uh, also, after we eat. In Deuteronomy it says, you know, when you've eaten and you've got a full tummy, bless God for the good land he gave you. So um, that's, that's some contextualization for that, for that idea. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, this is another verse that could be misunderstood. It says that um, Elohim is the savior of everybody especially of believers. Now, based on that one verse, if you wanted to build a theology on one verse, you could say, well, I guess everybody's going to heaven. guess we're going to see everybody in the kingdom. I always hope I don't get, get a mansion next to Adolf Hitler or Genghis Khan or whatever. I mean, you know, uh, that, that, that concept is called universalism. Basically, everybody makes it. Uh, of course, the, the, the broader corpus of the uh, apostolic scriptures very strongly suggest otherwise. What, what, what I get out of that verse, though, is, you know what? He's involved in everybody's life. And he's helping everyone. And you know what? Every single person you meet, all of your friends, even if they're totally non-religious, at some point in their life, he has saved them from something. And that's a very broad vision. That takes our spirituality out of just my little religious clique, and it's something that applies to everybody. So, you know, um, everyone you meet, remember that. He's involved in that person's life. He's, he's either rescued them from something, or he is rescuing them. And uh, if you ever want to share your faith with someone in a meaningful way, that's a great place to start. Start with the assumption that the Creator is involved in this person's life, even if they don't believe in Him, and that at some point, He has saved them from something. You could go on to ask them, have you ever had a major crisis that you were just like rescued from? Maybe even supernaturally. Have you ever had a near-death experience where you should have died? Maybe, uh, I, I almost died in a construction accident. I almost died several times, actually. Um, you know, there, almost everyone has a story like that. Start there. Because for a lot of people, they will give credit to the man upstairs. Haven't you ever heard that? Even people who like, don't give a rip about living righteously, they're like, yeah, you know, I think it was the man upstairs who really came through for me that time. So start there, when you're sharing your faith. See how he has already shown his kindness to them. Uh, Paul said in Romans, it's the kindness of Elohim that leads us to repentance. So, you know, if you can help someone see that the man upstairs has been showing them kindness, has been helping them out, has maybe got them through some tough times when they hit rock bottom, that person will be more likely to turn to him and maybe go upstairs and spend some time with the man upstairs. The idea there. So on a practical level, that's, a, that's something that I would get out of that. And I encourage you, write that down. Do that with a... Like right now, think about someone you know. Maybe an extended family member, a co-worker or a neighbor, just ask that person next time, maybe in the next week or two, say, you know, have, have you ever, ever had any times where you had a near-death experience and you were just, you, you made it? Or you had something where you just know that there was a higher power that brought you through. It's a good place to start on a practical level. Um, in chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says to Timothy, evidently Timothy was still relatively young, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. Why would Paul say this to Timothy? Because there were people who were the age equivalent of being racist or uh, bigoted or whatever. There were people who looked down on Timothy because he was young. They dismissed him, they wrote him off simply because of his age. So that's something we never want to do in the Messianic community. We've talked about that before, but it's something to continue to uh, stay aware of. He goes on to say, Timothy, prove to be an example. So that's something that we can, all, we can all apply to our lives. Timothy was a leader, firstly, not by what he taught, not by some title or some, some degree he had. He was a leader by example. And, and that's where leadership starts, isn't it? From focusing on my life and being an example to other people. It's probably the highest level of influence you'll ever have is simply by who you are and how you do life and by the example that is to people who see that you've, uh, you've got the real thing. Um, Paul goes on in, in verse 13 this is something that applies to congregations to say give attention to three things 
He says, uh, don't neglect these things. I, I assume maybe that uh, we as people would have a, uh, an atten- a tendency towards that. Firstly, what, what's the first thing in verse 13? Give attention to the... That's right, the public reading of Scripture. And in the Greek, it simply says, give attention to the reading. Now, in that time, you have to remember, everybody didn't have a Bible. Uh, even today, if you want to buy a Torah scroll, it'll cost you at least 20 grand. Very expensive. So in ancient times, if you wanted to hear the Bible, you had to go to the synagogue, which happened to be a very Jewish institution, and that's where you would hear the Bible read. Uh, that's where you would hear the Bible expounded on. Um, even in the 1500s, uh, you know, around the time of the Gutenberg printing press and before that, if you wanted to get a copy of, English, uh, of the Bible in English, it would cost you a fortune. It would cost you around today's equivalent of $200,000. So if you were hungry for the word, you would have to pool your resources with several other families, and this is generally how it's done, and you would have to go to great lengths to try and get one of those illegal copies of a translation of the word in English. And then you would hide it wherever in your house, and you and the other families that pooled your resources, you would go to that house, maybe in the middle of the night, and you would read that thing all night long. You'd really burn the midnight oil. So, you know, we can never forget that we are so blessed just to have copies of the scriptures at home that we can get up in any time, like in the morning, and, and study f- from. So, you know, firstly, that's, that was Paul's, um, that's the context of Paul saying, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Even though we have the Bible today, I think it continues to be applicable. It's a very powerful statement when a community simply proclaims the Word of God publicly without inserting our opinions, without couching it in our own theological perspectives, just, just proclaiming the Bible. And, of course, that's something that the Jewish world did then. It's something that the Jewish world continues to do today. And as the only Jewish community in PA, that's something that we also do. Um, secondly, Paul says to give attention to preaching. And uh, uh, how many of you have eSword on your computer? How many of you like to uh, use eSword when you're studying? I love eSword because you'll have one word in the Greek and it'll be translated in five or six terms in the English. So if you, often if you'll like, you'll find the Greek word, let's say it's G, uh, Strong's number G for Greek, like 2134. So you go and key that into Esword, and it'll show you every place that that word turns up in the whole Bible or in the New Testament or Old Testament, and, uh, and you can compare. I really, I, I really love that. That's something I do regularly. E-S-W-O-R-D. So check out eSword. Anyway, I'll give you some of the results of my eSword study this week. I checked out this word for preaching. In uh, Oh, actually, sorry, it's the word, I think, for exhortation. Um, I think the NASB translates this word as exhortation. Yeah, that's right. I, frankly, the word exhortation scares me. If, if someone is like, yeah, I, I, I'm going to exhort you. I exhorted that guy. It's like, Ouch. I don't know, it's kind of one of those like fancy words that we usually only use in the religious world. It's like, for me, it's like either exorcism, like casting a demon out of someone, or extortion, like ripping someone off. I have to admit, when I hear like exhorting, that's what I think of. It's like, it doesn't sound very positive. So I, I, let's look at the original meaning of this word, and maybe we can, we can get some more out of it. Uh, the Greek word is uh, parakletos. How many of you have heard that word before? Yeah, um, periclesis in this context. Um, in, other, in other places in the apostolic scriptures, this word is translated as, here I'm going to give you five words, so count them on your fingers, comforting. So to, to pericle, periclesis means to comfort, to console, to encourage, to appeal, and to urge. So all of those concepts are wrapped up in the Greek word Pericles, yes, and it also means, and this is, I think, the most physical, concrete meaning, to come alongside. Uh, Yeshua, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, called the Holy Spirit the paraclete. Mm-hmm. Correct me on my Greek, how is that? That's correct. Yeah, the paraclete. So the Holy Spirit is the ultimate encourager, comforter, the one who's there to urge you, to appeal to you. This is the job of the Holy Spirit. And here Paul says this is also a role that we play as we communicate in the midst of the Holy Assembly. Um, so, you know, the Holy Spirit is a paraclete, and so are you, as you are, as you are uh, moving with Him and allowing Him to speak through you. And then, and then thirdly, Paul says, give attention to 
teaching. I, uh, I posted an excellent talk by Mark Driscoll on my Facebook wall this week, in which he uh, there's this there's this trend in the especially in the emergent movement away from preaching and towards discussion. And there's a place for both, of course. Both are very important. But sometimes preaching gets a bad rap. Sometimes no preaching happens in some emergent circles, sometimes also in the house church movement, in in many messianic communities also. Preaching isn't as popular anymore. Group discussion is the in thing. And Mark Driscoll gave a great talk in defense of preaching. Uh, I, if you if you want to check it out, just check it out. Google uh, Mark Driscoll, and or you can just simply get on my Facebook wall and uh, and look at that link. Anyway, teaching is the last thing, and uh, you know what teaching is? It involves instruction, practical how to. It involves relaying relevant facts and history. So these are three things that Paul says give attention to in our congregational gatherings. Uh, he he goes on to say on a personal level for each one of us. Don't neglect the spiritual gift within you. So you have a spiritual gift. You have an endowment that has given you a supernatural ability. Think about that. You actually have an endowment through which you have a supernatural ability to help other people, to build them up, to advance the kingdom. Um, there are two lists of these spiritual endowments that, that I'll, I'll share with you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12. As I go through these, just let the Holy Spirit speak to you personally. Maybe you already know what your, what your endowment is. Maybe you have a couple of them. I know often I know people who move in quite a few of these things. And just, uh, just let, him, let him show you what that might be. There are, there are words of wisdom. So just that, that practical wisdom for the moment. Are there words of knowledge where you just have supernatural information on, on a person or a situation? Uh, there's faith, massive faith. There's healing, Physical healing, I'm sure that also applies to inner healing. Uh, miracles, where you just, where the, the, the supernatural, the paranormal is accomplished through you. There's prophecy, where you're enabled to speak the word of God into situations under the inspiration of his Holy Spirit. There's the discernment of spirits, where you can just say, you know what, this spiritual influence isn't healthy. That is actually a demonic source, etc. Or you can say, you know what, I feel like maybe this spirit, whatever, is uh, maybe attacking someone or something. Uh, there's languages and the translation of languages, tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Um, there is... There is also in Romans chapter 12, he lists prophecy, which we already covered, service, which is, of course, is administration and helping out in practical ways, which is huge. Uh, teaching, again, he mentions. Uh, then there's paracleting. This is one of the gifts, paracleting. So you know what? Some of you in this room will be gifted just to encourage other people, to speak to other people's hearts, to comfort them. That's, that's your spiritual endowment. And that isn't just you functioning on a natural level. That's Yeshua reaching out through you, speaking his heart through you to other people's hearts. Paracleting, uh, financial giving, is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, leading is another one. And finally, showing compassion. Uh, mercy type ministries. So, um, you know what? Every one of us in this room, we have one of these supernatural endowments and let's just continue to encourage each other in them. Let's continue to break out in them. Paul says don't neglect it. That means that we could actually have a human tendency to neglect our gifts, to not bother, to talk ourselves down, to, to whatever, you name it. So, let's just hear that from Yeshua's emissary. You've got a gift. Use it to bless those around you, to help them. To, uh, to show the Father's love. And uh, you know what? This would be cool. I'd like to develop a culture in our community where we point out each other's gifts. Where we say, you know what? I really see Yeshua in you in this area. I feel like the Father's given you a supernatural endowment in this area. And you've really blessed me through that. And just encourage each other. You know, some of us need that. Some of us need to be called out in those ways. And I would love it if we could continue to grow as a body in, in doing that. Um, Paul goes on to list the stuff that that feminine heroes are made of and then list some things that make for, uh, for masculine leaders. I want to look at that because uh, there, there are women in the Bible who are phenomenal heroes. There is so much, there's like so much opportunity in the kingdom for every woman who is a disciple of Yeshua to be a hero. And um, actually, the, the, the list of things that make a woman a hero, you know, Paul gives a small selection here. 
the, I, I, he, he lists some things that wouldn't necessarily be counted as very glitzy, especially in the Western world. These aren't the kinds of things that really make a woman, um, let's say, qualify her for being a pop star or something like that. But according to Paul, these are, these are qualities that are so admirable. These are, these are the kinds of things that like, make a person just say, wow, about, uh, about a woman in the Messianic community. Um, so in... in, um, in um, First Timothy chapter five verse ten, um, he he lists some things that just make for a woman with a solid reputation. Uh, firstly, uh, good works. He says in general, so doing good. He goes on to say, uh, firstly, bringing up children. So you know what, raising children is something that makes that's that's a heroic act. That's something to be very respected. Just raising children. Um, number two, washing. Oh, um, sorry, showing hospitality. To strangers, so just having people over, you know, showing them showing them that hospitality, that's something that's very highly valued in the messianic community. And number three, washing the feet of the saints. That means like serving Yeshua's people in in practical ways. Um, fourthly, he mentions um, assisting those in distress. So helping people in trouble. And then fifthly, he also mentions uh, something of a catch-all. He, he finishes this list by again saying, um, devoting herself to every good work. So you know when there's that dedication to just helping, to doing good. And you know what? I, I don't know. I, it kind of bugs me actually. Doing good doesn't have a very good connotation in English. You think of do-gooders. You think of people who do nice little things. But, but good, doing good is a powerful verb. I mean, like, doing good is like Heroic doing good involves taking risks and and gallant action that that makes the difference between life and death for people. You know when when Moses' um, older sister stepped in and saved the life of her little brother, she was doing good. Um, when the midwives, when they they expressly disobeyed the command of Pharaoh and they preserved life <coughs> instead of killing life, that was gutsy. That was doing good. And I I, I could list so many examples when when Judith in the Apocrypha, killed Holofernes, the general of the army that was going to massacre Jerusalem. She was doing good. I, I could go on and on. Um, so, you know, just want to expand our idea of doing good. And of course, this isn't a comprehensive list, right? But I think maybe Paul listed these things because these are the things that often go under the radar. These are the things that in, in the world often aren't highly valued like they should be. So, you know, my hat off, or I guess in this case my kippa off, to, to every one of you ladies in this room, because every, I, I see this in every one of you, in every one of you ladies. You are amazing. Uh, we respect you so highly. We appreciate um, the, 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 the contributions you've had to your families, to us as a community, the hospitality you've shown, the good that you've done in so many ways. So we, we honor you today. We, we thank you for that. And we just pray that the Father would continue to, to empower you and to inspire you and to give you vision and to just let you break out in who you are and what you're called to do. And I pray that we as brothers, we as, uh, as, as uh, husbands and fathers and sons and friends can, can really support you and, and call it the best in you too and, and pray for you. So I, I, that's something that we want to continue uh, growing in also. Paul goes on to a list, uh, a list of the kind of the flip side stuff, things that maybe women would possibly fall into, some of the dangers that, uh, that could happen. He mentions, uh, firstly, being idle, which means being lazy or unemployed. Um, basically, you know, that happens when uh, a woman neglects focusing on serving her family, serving the community around her. Maybe if she has too much time on her hands, you're in danger of becoming two other things that Paul mentions, um, a busybody. I looked at this word. I was like, what is a busybody? And uh, the Greek means working all around. Working all around. So what does that mean? I, I don't know. I, I assume it would mean like having to be involved in everything, maybe in a controlling way, uh, meddling or interfering in areas that aren't a person's business. I think that's the idea behind a busy body. He also mentions gossip. I looked up that word too. It, it's from the verb to bubble. The Greek word to bubble. A gossip in Greek is like a bubbler. Um, I think it has the connotation of bubbling over with other people's business. You just can't 
close your mouth, talking about other people, maybe in ways that aren't appropriate, or airing other people's laundry. And then he goes on to say this is something that, that is in danger. Women apparently in, in um, those early communities were going around, quote, from house to house, um, peddling their wares in that way. Now it's a lot, e- it's, it's, you know, it's even easier for women to do that today with the phone, with the internet. You don't even have to leave your house. You can just get on the phone and call half a dozen women and talk about whoever and whatever, you know, send an email, send an email bomb. There are all kinds of ways to do that. So Paul says, you know, if you're a lady, watch out. These are some danger zones. And uh, I'm sure us guys too are. Maybe sometimes we do that. Excellent. I have to admit, I've never been a female, so I don't have as much experience with some things or fa- facing some of those, those challenges. So, um, yeah, I, I've, been, I've been a non-female for my whole life, actually. Something I've noticed, too, is, you know, often... Some uh, people, or even a gender, will have a strength. And if we operate from a place that isn't from the Father's love, where we're full of the Father's love and satisfied in His love and secure in His love, if we operate from a place, let's say, of pride or, or, um, or independence or whatever, our strengths turn ugly. And it's like we continue to kind of do the same things, but it's all messed up. And I kind of wonder if that isn't the case here. I'm just, uh, this, I'm just thinking aloud here. I, I, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a strength of the female gender to be, to be a connector, to be a networker, to be in touch with how people are doing. And, uh, and I appreciate that, especially because often you know, women who are in touch with that will go on to pray for that person or to pray for situations. So I can almost kind of see how Paul is saying, like he's almost addressing what happens when things go wonky. You know, so heaven forbid that the sisters would ever feel discouraged from being those connectors, from getting on the phone, from praying for people who are in, in tough spots. So that's, that's the flip side. That's the strength side of it. Um, Paul goes on to give a list of job descriptions for, uh, for elders or men in congregational leadership. Um, perhaps it would be easy for us to read these and immediately unplug because we could say, well, I'm not an elder or I'm never going to be a pastor in congregational leadership, so I guess I can just kind of zone out for this part, right? But if you are a man, then these qualities that Paul is about to list are very applicable for every one of us. This is something that every one of us men can, uh, can aspire to, and, and women also, of course, eh? But I'm just going to specifically list us guys here uh, because... Cause, um, because we just talked about some stuff for the ladies. <laughs> so let's have a look at, at some of those. In um, 5.17, he says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So let's, let's have a look at that together. Uh, the, the Greek word there for ruling well is uh, Strong's number 4291b, and it's used in five other ways in the apostolic scripture. So let's have a look at those together. Uh, firstly, this word is translated in Romans chapter 12 as leading. All right? So this first, the, uh, I'll give you three tiers of the job description of someone who is an elder type in a congregation, and of course a lot of this can apply to females also, Um, someone who is in a position of influence, someone who people look up to, uh, someone who is in congregational leadership, okay? So the first one is ruling. And uh, so the first use of ruling is leading. Uh, Number two, this word in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 13 um, is translated as having charge over. Paul says, We request of you, brothers, that you appreciate those who work hard among you and have charge over you, that's that word, in the Master, and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So again, you'll notice Paul points out the work aspect of things. Um, the work aspect of leadership or, or being an elder type. Uh, on a side note, the action points from First Thessalonians Five. I was curious what these words meant too. Um, uh, what's the first one? Appreciate them. So on a practical level, saying thank you. You can all say thank you to each other lots. You know what? Right there, that makes you a leader. When you recognize what someone is doing and the benefit it is, whether it be to you or to the community, and you say thank you, you have become a leader because you're, you're going from being in a passive receptive position to being in an active giving position. So, I mean, that's so basic, but it's so powerful. And you know what? In our culture, it's so easy to, to not say thank you. Um, he goes on to say two other things. Esteem them highly. Uh, that simply means like speaking well of someone. And then finally, loving them. 
So on a practical level, you know, when you have people who are in leadership or who are working hard for the congregation, and I look around this room and most of you are, are contributing and working in certain areas, just say thank you, appreciate those people, and give them some love. Yeah, let's give each other lots of love in, in, in that area. Um, that's the second use of this word, having charge over. The third use of this word that is translated in 1 Timothy as, um, as uh, ruling is uh, managing. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 to 5, it says with regards to a deacon, his qualifications, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man doesn't know how to manage his own household well, how will he take care of God's community? So in this, in this case, this word is translated as managing. All right. So, so far we have leading, we have having charge over, and we have managing. Uh, these are like business terms too, aren't they? I wonder if there's ever some interchange between the two. Um, and then fourthly, this is one that really hit me as a male because this is an area that I've been really weak in and that the Father's really like confronted me on. In uh, Titus chapter 3, verses 8 and 14, Paul uses this word and it's translated as engaging in good deeds. Engaging in good deeds. And Paul says this is something for all of us. Um, as a male, I have a natural tendency to not engage. Sometimes engaging with people in relationships is scary. It gets complicated. Sometimes I don't feel like as competent in a relationship as I would when I'm fixing my truck. You know what I'm saying? It's like sometimes relationships can be deep waters. And so Paul says a hallmark quality of a leader and of an elder in a congregation is the ability to engage with people. So being engaged. And you know what? I guarantee you every one of us in this room will have times when for whatever reasons we will not feel like engaging with our family members, whether it be spouse or children, we will not feel like engaging with us as a community. Because frankly, we are gonna, we're going to really bug each other sometimes. I'm probably going to offend you sometimes. We're going to make each other mad because we're all humans and we all have this mess that we usually hide, but sometimes it just gets out. You know what I'm saying? So you know, at times like that, the loving thing to do is to engage, to work through issues, to communicate, uh, that kind of thing. So Paul says, you know what? When you do that, you are becoming a leader in your community. And that's a good thing. To the degree that we disengage is the degree to which we lose, basically. The degree to, the degree to which we engage is the degree to which uh, we win. And then finally, um, we have in the fifth instance, this, this word is translated as ruling. So just to recap, this, uh, this job description is uh, to lead, having charge over, managing, engaging, and ruling. And of course, that starts with their families, because that's the hardest place, often, to, uh, to be a leader, to engage, um, etc. And it, go, it moves on from there to, uh, to our communities. Um, secondly, Paul um, talks about elders who work hard at preaching and teaching. Do you know what the Greek word there is for preaching? Logos. What's the logos? It's the word. Yeah. So, you know, elders who work hard at communicating the word and, of course, studying the word and breaking it down in one's, one's personal understanding and applying it to one's life always precedes preaching the word, doesn't it? So, again, that's, that's something that, like, I feel inspired by, digging into the logos, the word. Um, and then, thirdly, he mentions uh, didascalia, or however you pronounce that. I'm a Hebrew teacher, not a Greek teacher. Um, if... You probably have some background in Greek, Joanne, so you probably are like, man, he's... Oh, good. You forgot most of it. Okay, so even if I butcher these words... Okay, good. So anyway, did us... <laughs> yeah, excellent. And so this last word is for teaching. Again, that's the idea of practical instruction, how to do stuff, apply it to your life, uh, relaying relevant facts and history. So... um. These are areas that, you know, every one of us in this room can engage in. I think especially, you know, um, for the men in our community, I, I would encourage you, brothers, like, let's grow together in these areas. It's going to be hard sometimes. That's why we have each other. We're going to encourage each other. We can hold each other accountable. Um, we, can, we can spur each other on. And um, that's cool. I, I feel really good about that. And again, you know, all of these things. Um, teaching. Teaching starts with their families, eh? That's, it's probably the hardest place sometimes to teach. 
uh, but it's the most important. You know, making the word come alive for your wife, nourishing her soul with with biblical truth, um, with insights, um, communicating insights to your children as the opportunities come up, things like that. Eh, um, those are things that I'm still really working at growing in. And then you'll notice finally that Paul says that communicating the word, the word and teaching like this, it's hard work. In other words, like this takes time, this takes energy, you have to try, you have to plan ahead, you have to be intentional about it. It doesn't just happen, which is why I'm taking some time to really dig in on this point and, and talk about it, eh? So basically the ball is in our court and from here let's, uh, let's make it happen. And then finally, uh, this is interesting. Paul says that, like in a community, in a community where you have people who are in leadership or uh, or elder types, he says to give them double honor. And I looked up the word for honor too. I was curious about it, and um, it's uh, Strong's number fifty ninety two. And in other situations, this word is translated in these ways: um, honor is translated as um, the value of something, the proceeds from a sale, the price of a piece of land, a sum of money. Uh, marks of respect and precious value. These are all expressions um, in the New American Standard Bible that uh, that are used to uh, try and communicate the essence of this word. So it's the idea of um, a monetary value attached to goods or services and uh, what you would pay for them. Uh, contextually, is the idea there. And um, Paul says here, you know, people who who really go for that who work hard at that, receive that times two. Um, Paul goes on to, uh, I want to I kind of tackle something here. You know, I, I had several years in the house church movement, and I've traveled a lot in the Messianic community, and in some areas there's this idea that elders or people in congregational leadership should never be paid. It should be voluntary, and, uh, and it, often that idea is called the tent-making approach, right? Um, people who are, who are doing things for the community should never be paid. They should be tent maker, uh, referring to Paul, who worked on the side to support himself. Eh? And um, I don't know if any of you have encountered that idea. It's, it's out there, especially in the house church circles and in the, some messianic communities. I, I, I would tackle that idea and say that's, that's patently false, um, that idea. Um, Paul was a tent maker. He did support himself. Uh, there were reasons for that. Paul said that that wasn't the norm in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He said that wasn't the norm, actually. He was doing that to be an example to the Corinthians. He was doing that so he would have a solid defense, and so he would be above, totally above reproach, because he had a lot of detractors and people who were criticizing him. Uh, another thing is Paul was a single guy. If you're a family man, and you function as an elder, and you work hard in the area of congregational leadership, you will either not be, you won't serve your congregation very well ultimately, or you will probably wreck your marriage or destroy your family life. It's simply, it's very hard to actively serve your congregation, to work hard at preaching and teaching, and to maintain a healthy family life, and to hold down a job. So that's on a practical level. Um, that's something that we can note. Read First Corinthians nine if you want to get the details on that, the the, the full picture. Even here, um, Paul goes on to uh, to mention this verse from the Torah about not muzzling the ox, and also um, he uh, he quotes actually something that isn't in Scripture. It must have been a popular proverb. Maybe it was in extra biblical literature. The laborer is worthy of his wages. I think if that proverb were to be used today, it would go something like. <laughs> Give the employee his paycheck. <laughs> Something like that. So anyway, Paul applies that to um, eldership and the role that they, they play. Um, Paul goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23. Say, Timothy, you know, you tote your water bottle around with you, and that's good, but you need, have a little wine too, okay? And um, of course, you know, societally, people will say, well, you know, water back then could be dangerous. It was often tainted, so wine was safer. I've heard that's often the case in, uh, in, um, in cultures. Uh, interestingly enough, the Greek word there for wine is um, Strong's number 3631, and it's oinos. And uh, it points out that it's actually a word of Hebraic origins. Does anyone know what the Hebrew word for wine is? Yain is the Hebrew word. Yain. And the Greek is oinos. In fact, um, some, some linguistic scholars would suggest that the word wine in English is from the Greek word yain. They sound a little similar, uh, don't they? 
Anyway, um, this was not grape juice that Paul was talking about. Um, This is wine that has the capacity to inebriate a person if consumed to excess. And uh, we learn that from another place where this is used, where Paul says, don't get drunk on wine in Ephesians chapter 5. If he wouldn't say don't get drunk on grape juice because you can't get drunk on grape juice. I don't care how many gallons you chug. So contextually he was talking about a beverage that had the capacity to inebriate someone if consumed to excess. And he tells Timothy to uh, enjoy a little of this every now and then or to to use it. Um, I'll share with you something that I think is kind of funny. You know, often we kind of have these two things. We have the law of God and then we have the traditions of man. And, uh, you know, there are instances in the Jewish religious world where Yeshua criticized the Pharisees for certain traditions of man that eclipsed commandments of God. He also criticized them for abandoning certain commandments of God. Now, I I have to admit, like, you know, my, my family comes from a Baptist and Alliance background. So I grew up as a teetotaler. We never had alcohol in my family when I was growing up as a pastor's kid and a pastor's grandkid. All right. So when we finally began reclaiming our Jewish heritage and coming back to our roots, the first time I had a glass of wine was at a Passover Seder, which I think is a very appropriate context, actually. But um, I think it's kind of funny. I'm just going to say in the Baptist world as an example. In the Baptist world, like, drinking wine is a sin. You just don't do it. In fact, some churches, if you want to be a church member, you sign a covenant that you will not imbibe alcohol. I just wonder sometimes if that isn't like qualifying as the traditions of man. I don't know. I, I think it is. And then at the same time, sometimes these same churches will be like, but you know, when it comes to the dietary laws, scrap the whole thing, eat whatever you want. I don't know. I just kind of wonder if Yeshua was around today, if he wouldn't say, you know what? You're supporting your traditions of man and you're discarding the law of God. I wonder. But I wonder if that wouldn't be an example. Let's, uh, let's, let's finish um, our, our study today by looking at some practical directives from Paul to uh, rich people. Now, of course, that doesn't apply to any of us. Yeah, none of us are rich. You know what? According to, um, if you were to look at our lifestyle compared to the rest of the world, um, the figures, in, you know, how, our, our standard of life, even if we're in debt, even if we almost have zero in the bank account, our standard of life, we, we're rich. Every one of the, us in this room is, is rich. Um, even people on minimum wage in, in the Western world are making, what, seven or eight times more than a billion other people in the world that make a dollar a day working in the rice paddies. So, you know, Paul has some words from the rich here, and I think it applies to, to all of us in this room. And uh, so I'll just go over those briefly with you and try and kind of try and hit the heart of each one of them, too. Um, this is in First Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. Uh, firstly... Actually, I'll just read these verses to you first and then I'll break them down. He says in verse 17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world, that's a very Jewish term, the olam hazeh, this world, as, as opposed to the olam haba, the world to come. Don't be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with everything to enjoy. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. God richly supplies us with everything? To enjoy. Wow. He goes on to say, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that, which is life indeed. So, uh, number one, he says, don't let your wealth make you proud. So, don't measure yourself by the size of your bank account. Never compare yourself with someone else based on your socioeconomic status because that, according to Paul, is one of the definitions of pride. And you know what? It's pretty easy to do that too. It really is on a subconscious level. Paul says, watch out for that. Uh, Number two, he says, hope in God and not in your wealth. Uh, Don't look to your investments or your retirement plan for that feeling of security for your future. Are investments a good idea? Absolutely. Um, Are we glad about retirement plans? Oh yeah, but Paul says here, but ultimately don't, don't look to that for your feeling of security for the future. Look to God. He's your ultimate provider. Uh, He goes on to say, uh, be rich 
in good deeds. In other words, don't measure your wealth in dollar figures. Measure your wealth in how much good you do with what you have. See your wealth as the means to help others and to be good in the world. To do good in the world. So, you know, those figures in our bank accounts or in investments or whatever, those are to be measured by our ability to do good in this world and to help other people. Um, He goes on to say simply, be generous with what you've got, share, and then um, fifthly and finally, the concept behind saving money is to lay a foundation for your future. That's true, eh? You know, you, you, uh, you regularly save and put in an investment or, uh, or, or whatever, a Canada pension plan. The idea there is uh, laying a foundation for your future. And Paul says that by doing this, by applying this, by being generous, by sharing, by doing good, by helping people in practical ways, we're laying a true foundation for our future, not only in this life, but in the life to come. And that's where it counts, eh? You'd hate to have a retirement plan for the kingdom when Yeshua comes back and to be out on the streets or whatever. So, you know, we're investing for our future in this world and we're laying a foundation for our future in the world to come by doing good and helping people. Uh, Paul goes on to say, by doing this, we are going to be taking hold of real life, inferring it's possible to have a life that isn't a real life. So... In 6 verse 12, he also uh, he says the same thing about eternal life. It's something to, to grab, to take hold of actively. Faith is a fight. So, you know what? We're all engaged in, in combat on that level. It's the combat of faith. So let's continue to encourage each other. And in this upcoming week even, as we, uh, you know, as we go to battle, as we face attacks, and... Uh, as we continue to exert ourselves to take hold of the eternal life and to, uh, to find the life that's a real life. So, man, I don't know. I don't know about you, but like, I love reading Paul's letters to Timothy. They're just so rich. They're so practical. You know, individually, family, uh, as a community. Um, it just really gets me going. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham. And thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.